The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Our second and final reading for today is the Gospel reading, and as is tradition, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of the Gospel. Here are the words of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey." The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May God bless the hearing of his word. You may be seated. So just the two readings for today, and if you've been with us, you may um, be accustomed to hearing four readings. That's traditionally what happens with the lectionary. There's an Old Testament reading and a psalm reading, and uh, a New Testament epistle reading, and a gospel reading. Well, today is Palm Sunday, uh, but it's also the day when when the church celebrates the liturgy of the Passion. And the Passion is the narrative of Jesus uh, in leading up to his crucifixion. And so there's actually uh, several other readings assigned for today, but we're topically we are fo- focusing on the Palm Sunday side of things. Um, but as you prepare your hearts for Easter Sunday, I would suggest that maybe you go find the lectionary. You can just do a web search for lectionary, and you'll find it. Um, and it has, and you could you could read those other readings, which are assigned for the liturgy of the Passion. And those would be a great way to prepare yourself for for our Good Friday service and for Easter Sunday. Um, but today it's just the two readings um, related to Palm Sunday, called Palm Sunday because they cut the the palm leaves and laid them on the ground for the donkey to walk on. Um, and you can see how those, perhaps at least, how, how those two readings have connection to each other, right? If you heard some of the words in the psalm that, that Keith read, some of the imagery there showed up again in the gospel reading. And so you can see how the Jewish people of Jesus' day in, in Jerusalem connected this teacher in their midst, this Jesus of Nazareth, with the promised king from the Hebrew Scriptures, both in the prophet's and in the in the writings in the in the uh, 
the Psalter in this case, the Psalms. And uh, as you know by now, we are doing two things during each sermon during this Lenten season. The first thing we're doing is taking a brief look at the passages, so we'll, we'll do that in a minute, and simply drawing out one point, one observation, and it's kind of like a little mini-sermon. And then the second thing we're doing is we're also learning about one classical spiritual discipline, a particular practice that you can do, some action that you can take, um, or steps you can take to, uh, to grow closer to God and to know Him more. And so far, we've been kind of lucky in that the, um, there's been a nice connection between the two parts. And I didn't really plan it that way, but it just worked out that, that uh, the discipline that we ended up talking about fit, in most cases, with the scriptures that we read. And that actually is uh, also the case today. We'll get to the discipline soon. But uh, for now, I want to talk a little bit about this crowd of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, worshiping him. And hailing him as king, the language that he used was very clear. It was, in fact, quoting one of the prophets, that Jesus is their king. And they're exuberant and rash in some cases. They take off their coat and throw it in the, in the ground and um, dirty. You know, there's a donkey that Jesus is riding on. I don't know if you've ever seen donkeys or horses or things like that in a parade, but... Um, nowadays, we have little baskets to catch the mess, um, but the, the coat was going to catch the mess in this case. These, these folks were committed <laughs> to Jesus, right? And my tendency when preaching on this passage in the past, and tell me if you, if you connect with this at all, um, has been to take the crowd to task a little bit. After all, we have the benefit of knowing what happens next in the story, and we know that just a few short days later, most of these people would be uh, nowhere to be found, probably best case scenario, disappeared, forgetting that they had made this big show of welcoming Jesus in as a king because he was in some serious trouble, and they would be too if they supported him. Or maybe worst case scenario, they were part of the second mob of people that was shouting, crucify him. And so my tendency in the past is to say, oh, look at these idiots. They're, they're saying one thing about Jesus now, but you just wait. You just listen a little longer. You'll hear them say an entirely different thing. They thought of Jesus as their king, but their concept of the type of king that Jesus was going to be was all wrong. They wanted him to be a historical conquering king. They wanted him to overthrow uh, King Herod, who was this puppet ruler that the Roman Empire had put in place over the Jews and was oppressing them. And, and the hope of these folks was that Jesus would be this conquering king. He would overthrow Herod, and he would restore the Jews to their rightful place of rulership in Jerusalem. And that's, of course, not the type of king that Jesus wanted to be at all. That's not the sort of kingdom he was ushering in at all. So it's easy to criticize the crowd for their shallow commitment to him, for their finicky faith, for their unrestrained flakiness, which, which goes so far as to border on outright evil. But this time, instead, I want, to, I want us to do our best to honor what was actually there in the hearts of the people in that moment. 
want us to honor their actual response to Jesus that day, which was an unabashed, joyous shout of praise to Jesus as king. Because the truth is, really, if we're honest with each other, that we are no better than that crowd welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. We are all about worshiping and praising him, calling him our king, even though our own wills are every bit as weak as theirs. Even though our our actions do not do any good in bringing about the type of kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And even though our spirits are governed, as we talked a week or two ago, about our, by our own selfish desires. That's why we need the discipline of submission. Rather than by a submission to his will and rather than by his spirit. And here's an important thing to remember. We ought to all keep this in mind before we jump on this crowd too hard. Anything that you want to say about other people and how they relate to God you must be willing to apply to yourself. Or maybe it's better that you don't say anything at all. Have you ever said one thing about Jesus one day? Maybe, I don't know, maybe a Sunday. And then the next day or the next day after that or by Wednesday, let's say, you're saying a completely different thing about him or saying nothing at all about him. After all, I'm at work. I wouldn't want to bother my friends with that. Or maybe you've acted in a way that that's made a liar out of yourself. Don't forget the story of, of Peter who swore to Jesus up and down, I will never deny you. I will never forsake you. And then... You know, before his alarm clock went off, he had done it three times. And yet Peter became the most significant leader in the early church after the resurrection of Jesus and after the coming of the Holy Spirit. was a powerful preacher whose, whose words and actions brought thousands of people to faith in Christ. So there's, a, there's a, uh, a bright side that we can look on here about our own fickleness because we've seen it in people like Peter. But the point is this. Believing the exact right things about Jesus, as important as that is, and we're going to actually talk about that next week on Easter Sunday, why it's important to believe the truth about Jesus. But the point is, if, if you waited around to get everything perfectly arranged in your little doctrinal flower bed and all the weeds up and out, and everything blossoming just right in your little doctrinal flower bed. If you waited until that happened before you opened your mouth to praise him, I would venture a guess that you would never open your mouth to praise him at all. And so let's not criticize the crowd for what happens later in the story. Let's not do that today at least. Not on Palm Sunday. Today, let's join them in their exuberance and learn a little something from their passion because God knows we could use a little passion. We are uh, an intellectual bunch. 
<laughs> Don't make me make another NASCAR joke, Tim. I'm trying to be nice to you. <laughs> he did scoff, though. Let the record show that. Tim scoffed when I said we are an intellectual bunch. <laughs> Some of us are uh, overly intellectual <laughs> to the point of being possibly too restrained. And we think, ooh, I wouldn't want to get my coat dirty. I wouldn't want to say something now that I may not be able to back up later. Those things are maybe important, but what's important today on Palm Sunday is worshiping Him and doing it with, with some joy and some energy. Worship Jesus, even if you do not have a perfect knowledge of him. If, if there's no other lesson on Palm Sunday to learn, I think that's what it is. Because those people sure did not have a perfect knowledge of him, and they, they worshiped him in that moment. So that's the little lesson from our, from, uh, from our gospel reading today. I want to move on now and talk about our spiritual discipline, which is, in fact, the discipline of worship. Oh, it was almost too easy. Um, but let's talk about worship a little bit because um, worship is something that we do already, week in and week out. Most of us come to, to church and we would say we worship, right? You'd agree? That's what we're here to do. That's what we do. But even though we do it, I wonder how often any of us thinks about it as a spiritual discipline. In other words, as as an intentional spiritual practice that's something that you do in order to grow closer to God and to deepen your knowledge and love of Him. I want to encourage you to begin to think about worship in that way, not just as something that you do because it's what you do, not just as something that you do because you come to a room full of people and that's what they're doing and you're part of the community and you join them. Those are good reasons. But I want you to begin to think about worship as an intentional spiritual discipline. Um, And so... If we're going to define worship, we can do that a couple of different ways. Here's, here's a very famous quotation that defines what worship is. It's from William Temple, who was, a, a, he was Church of England. Um, this is what he says. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. All this is gathered up in that emotion which most cleanses us from selfishness because it is the most selfless of all emotions, adoration. So William Temple says that worship is adoration. And you want to talk about some of the problems that we had last week and the reasons that we need the discipline of submission so that we can be free from the never-ending burden to get our own way and everything. Closely related to that is this tendency to want to be selfish and to contain ourselves. <laughs> and Temple says that, that to worship is to, to practice and embrace that most selfless of all emotions, adoration. Think about the way, and this is very obviously very close to me in my life, think about the way you talk to a little baby. <laughs> Would you want to talk that way in front of anybody else? <laughs> I mean, it, people give you a pass if there's a cute baby there, especially my baby because he's extra cute. But they'll give you a pass if you're a little baby. I, you just adore the little baby. 
But if you're saying that to your your girlfriend or something, oh, I love you. <laughs> yeah. I made fun of those people in college, that's for sure. <laughs> but that's adoration. Do you see how that forces you into selflessness? You can't really think very highly of yourself if you're going to talk in that way. <laughs> Your dignity is just... <laughs> but that's what worship is. It's adoration of, of God, according to William Temple, anyway. Here's another way to, to define it, because I know some of you are like, oh, good, give me something a little more intellectual, Pastor. You know? <laughs> And this baby talk. Worship is a reenactment, a dramatic retelling of the gospel story. We've talked about this recently, haven't we? At each time we come together, it's as though we're performing a four-act play that tells the story of God. The reason I say four-act play is because uh, traditionally Christian worship follows a four-fold pattern, and we, you, you may or may not have ever noticed that we do that here, but the four Movements of worship are gathering, where we're drawn together. The Word, where we're hearing the Word proclaimed. That's my role today. The table, where we come together around the Lord's Supper. And sending forth, where we're sent forth to be the church. You know, one of our founding pastors was very fond of saying, this is not church. This is a worship gathering. You are the church. You are the members, the parts of the body of Christ. And so you want to go out and be the church. That's what that sending forth movement is. So it's gathering, word, table, and sending forth. It's this little, this four-act play where we retell the story of God. And, and we talk about how the, the uh, celebrating the, the elements of communion proclaim his death. And here's where our physical setup in our, in our sanctuary might, might be a little bit of a detriment to what we're trying to do here because... You might think, okay, it's a, it's a play that the pastor and the worship leaders are putting on for all the people in the congregation. How nice. But that's not actually what I mean when I say that worship is a reenactment or dramatic retelling of the gospel story. What I mean is that we are all together on the stage. We are all reenacting, engaging with that story of the gospel. And the audience is God. And so, you know, this is, maybe it's a necessary evil the way we set things up, but I hope that you don't get the impression that, that uh, your worship leaders and your pastors and people who happen to stand facing that wall are performing something for you who are facing that wall. Really what we ought to be doing is guiding you in the process of, of reenacting that story and performing that retelling of the gospel for, for the God in whom we find that story. We act out our love for God by inhabiting God's story. So you can think of worship as adoration. Uh, you can think of worship as Reenactment, both of those would be true. Those are ways to define worship. But uh, perhaps it would be helpful to get a little bit more practical, to move out of the realm of definition and theory and to talk about the, the realm of praxis or practice or what we actually do. And so how do we worship? 
I want to propose several um, several aspects or attributes of, of of good biblical worship. The first thing I'd like to say about worship is that it's full-hearted. And in order to explain what I mean by that, I want to read to you um, a few paragraphs from another book that I would like to recommend to you. Last week we talked about Richard Foster's classic book, Celebration of Discipline, and I recommended that you all went out and bought that, and I'm sure that you all did, and are two or three chapters in by now. Um, if you only buy one book about the spiritual disciplines, that's the one to buy. Uh, if you're going to buy a second one, I would recommend this one, which is called Soul Feast. My cover is a little different from that one on the screen, uh, by Marjorie Thompson. Um, it's a little bit less systematic, and, uh, and uh, it has a kind of a different angle on things, but it's also a very good book. Um, and so I want to read to you a few chapters, and she's talking about this, this concept of the heart. Worship from the heart. And she quotes Mark 12, saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. She says, When Jesus identifies this great commandment, he sets worship at the center of human life. Worship as full-hearted love of God is meant to permeate our lives. Private or public, it is always first and foremost a matter of the heart. She goes on to say, We cannot realize the richness and vitality of worship until we comprehend the meaning of heart in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, this is very interesting. In Western culture, head and heart describe different spheres. You know that's true, right? Head signifies our rational, analytical functions, while heart represents our feeling capacities. But a purely emotional heart does not express its scriptural significance. In the Jewish tradition, the heart is the seat and center of the whole person, the core of personal character, including thought, emotion, will, intuition, and imagination. Thoughts, both good and evil, arise from the heart. Motives, desires, and intentions come from the heart. When the heart is turned toward God, one is filled with grace and truth. When the heart turns away, a person dwells in delusion. The Christian church, of which we are a part, inherited this understanding of heart from the Jewish tradition. And I'll conclude this reading with this part, which is where it really gets interesting. True worship from the heart, then, means responding to God's glory and love with our entire being. After all, when spirit touches spirit, we are moved, both in feelings and commitments. Too many worshiping communities encourage only half-hearted worship. In churches that tend toward reason and order, look around, Many members yearn to express the intuitive and, and feeling side of faith. In churches where intellect is considered a poor cousin to emotional experiences of faith, many people are hungry for serious, and st serious study and responsible action. Uh, and it goes on to talk about some of the cultural things there. But do you understand now what I mean when I say that worship ought to be full-hearted in the Jewish sense of the word heart, where it encompasses our whole being and is not simply something that occurs in the rational sphere or something that occurs in the emotional sphere, but something that squeezes those spheres together and, and encourages us to be holistic people and embrace our entire being and express our entire being to God. So worship should be full-hearted, not half-hearted. Second thing about worship is that it is initiated by God. This is an interesting concept because sometimes when we get together to worship... We pray. What do we pray? God, we invite you to be here among us. 
I try not to use that language because of this principle, but you may catch me using it sometimes. But really, as Richard Foster says, worship is the human response to a divine initiative. It's a human response to a divine initiative. So his spirit tugs on your hearts and my heart and calls us together to this place to be drawn into the act of worship. And so we don't need to invite the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit invited us. It would be like me going to, you know, Ariana and Brian's house and saying, hey, guys, welcome. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thirdly, worship is corporate. Now, I don't mean corporate piggish. I don't mean that it's uh, it occurs in uh, some office park. <laughs> Lord knows you spend enough time in that sort of corporate environment. But corporate um, just means bodily, just means of the body. And it, it, also, it means communal. So it's the whole body coming together. Um, Foster, in his book that I've mentioned a couple of times now, separates disciplines into inward disciplines and outward disciplines and corporate or communal disciplines. And worship is one of the corporate disciplines. It's something that we have to do together. Yes, you can worship God on your own, but worship itself is a discipline that is going to call you into community with other people. You can't really put on that play by yourself. Nobody likes the soliloquy that goes on forever and ever and ever. The interaction that we have is part of the story. And so when we talk about, we, we, we sometimes use the word liturgy. You've heard me say liturgy before. Um, it's, a, it's a word that some people associate with stiff order. I usually use it to describe the, the, the flow of worship, that fourfold pattern that I talked about. Um, but liturgy just literally means it's from two words, laos and orgia. Laos is people and orgia is work. So liturgy is the work or the service of the people, not of the person, not of the, the pastor, but it's the work of the people. And so we have to have the people, plural, in order to do it. Fourthly, worship is inward. Worship begins with what is within you, each one of you. If we're going to come together and worship corporately as a body, it's important that each member of that body, each part of that body, is prepared to participate in the act of worship. And so I would recommend that when you come to a worship gathering here at Artisan or elsewhere, that you try to be intentional about preparing your heart, preparing your entire being for what you're about to do. And for some of you, that might mean not having the radio on or the podcast on or whatever on your way into the, on the commute. For some of you, it might mean cutting your conversation short just a few minutes early and coming in here, and we try to have some music playing usually in here, and and maybe meditating or praying and preparing your heart. For some of you, who maybe if you you live alone, it might be better to stay in in the lobby and talk to people until the last possible minute because you're, you're preparing yourself to engage in a communal activity. But whatever it is for you, I would encourage you to spend some intentional time on your way into this room, whether it's from another room in the building or whether it's from the parking lot or whether it's from your home, on your way in here to prepare for 
worship because you have to be inwardly ready. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is that worship is ultimately an outward act. It's an outward expression of the inward reality. It's something that you have to do. If you just stand there and don't make a peep or sit there and say nothing, you are not going to be doing worship. You're not going to be doing anything. Worship is innately and inherently physical. It involves the movement of your body and the vibration of your vocal cords. And here's the reason why I think this is crucially important, that, that worship is outward. And sometimes you just got to let yourself go just a little bit. I mean, again, <laughs> be a little bit exuberant. But the reason why this is so important is that I really believe that what we do with our bodies matters to what happens in our hearts. If your heart, if you just wait around for your heart to be ready to worship, that's going to atrophy. That heart is going to get weak and hard, and it's going to decay into something that's never going to worship. You have to actually do it. And it's in the action of doing something, of actually worshiping, that your heart is steered a little bit onto the way of worship. The outward can correct the inward. When, the, when, the, when your heart and soul have kind of gone off course a little bit, doing the right thing can bring it back. There's always this dance between your motives and your actions, and there's a little bit of a chicken and egg question that goes there. But a lot of times you, you feel powerless over your motives, don't you? That's what temptation is all about. You just have to do the right thing. It doesn't matter what you feel or think or want to do in that moment. You know whether it's right or wrong. You've got to do the right thing. And the beautiful, brilliant part of this is that when you do the right thing, it begins to correct the motives so that it's easier to do the right thing the next time. Of course, the flip side of that is if you ignore that and, and do the wrong thing, it's going to be so much easier to do that the next time. And it probably happens twice as fast in the wrong direction as it does in the right direction. But I think this is a, as good a point as any for us to conclude on today. Um, because this principle is true of all the spiritual disciplines that we've talked about so far in this series. And it's true of all the disciplines that we won't have time to get to in this series. The disciplines, remember, are not punishment. Although we sometimes conflate the meaning of those two words. right? The disciplines are about rhythm, routine, and structure. They provide a way for us to walk when the road is hidden from view. And worship, like all the disciplines, is something to be not just talked about and thought about, but to be practiced and done. It's an act of will that guides our spirit to encounter the spirit. And so let's agree with the psalmist the words that Keith read earlier. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes, which is a verse that I've been clinging to since the very earliest days of Artisan and actually even before Artisan, the little community of faith that formed before Artisan existed. Um, 
I remember this, this verse being read in the old sanctuary at Bethel Church where we used to meet. This is almost 10 years ago now. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And I took that to apply to the formation of this community, which I was just completely amazed by because I, believe me, did not want anything to do with, with being a, a pastor or a church planter at that time. Um, and yet this, this beautiful community was forming around me and is continuing to form around me and around you. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And our response is to worship God in the words of the psalmist who says, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Amen. We'll continue proceeding through that fourfold pattern of worship. Um, and we've come to the time now where we're going to come around the Lord's table. And uh, our communion table is an open table here at Artisan. It's not dependent on your membership in this community or your membership in a particular denomination. Uh, it's only dependent on your desire to know and follow Jesus and to, as I said earlier, to proclaim his death and resurrection until he comes again. And so if you are in that place, I'd encourage you to come during the, the singing that will happen in the next 15 or 20 minutes. Tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in either the wine or the juice, whatever's more appropriate for you and your family. And you can bring your kids in on this if you'd want, or you can wait until after you've taken communion to go get your kids. Um, uh, but, but that is our act of worship for now. As we continue to, to sing together, you are invited to come to the Lord's table. If that's something that wouldn't feel appropriate for you just yet, that's okay too. You are more than welcome to stay with us in this place and to worship in the ways that are appropriate for you or simply to, to be silent and meditate and pray and to ask for God's presence. But whatever response he asks of you, um, I would call you to it and to respond as he leads. Let's continue to worship together. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.